Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, you know when Captain America takes a break fighting crime to send nude pictures of himself, and when the state of Florida decides to pass a bill that accommodates certain things for the zombie apocalypse, that things are not going well in this world. Well, welcome to episode 49. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining me. We are going to be introducing a new format this week, uh, which we hope that everyone likes. Uh, but before we get going and we address those very, very critical news stories, especially the zombie apocalypse, uh, I want to thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Organico Cafe, juice, juice Bar, and Health Food Store. Organico is celebrating its 10th year in business and was voted the best organic health food store in Bergen County. Uh, visit Organico today online at www.organicogrocerycafe.com or stop by their Ramsey location for an award-winning smoothie. Organico is located at 475 North Franklin Turnpike in Ramsey, New Jersey. All right, so let's get right into uh, the news segment. Um, but before we do that, I just want to make uh, one mention of a recent uh, charitable event that we were fortunate enough to participate in. We participated in the 2014 Operation Cigars for Warriors Drive and we donated over 75 premium hand-rolled cigars. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that organization is, uh, it's an organization that uh, gathers premium cigars for the troops overseas and then uh, makes up care packages and sends them over. Uh, whether or not you are an advocate of cigar smoking is really not important. Uh, you know. Troops that are looking for cigars, they find it very difficult to get them, and so this was just a nice way to say thank you. Um, if you want more information about Cigars for Warriors, you can go to their website at cigarsforwarriors.org. Okay, I want to talk about some uh, recent news that is somewhat disturbing. Um, <clears throat> if you have kids or if you yourself are a young adult. Everybody has had some familiarity with um, boys being boys, especially in the locker room. And occasionally, for some reason, I can't figure it out, but some guys will run over to another guy and slap them in the testicles. They call it all sorts of things. They call it Bangkok. They call it, uh, you know, ball tap, all, all these different words for it. And, and I guess for some people, they get some sort of pleasure out of, of this game. Uh, well, I want to tell you a story about a lawsuit that has been filed in New Jersey. Um, this is a personal injury 
case involving an individual who was in the locker room with a group of buddies who had his testicles slapped uh, and ultimately resulted in him being infertile for the rest of his life. And he filed the lawsuit against the kid that hit him. And um, what happened is essentially the kid that hit him went to his parents, explained the situation. The parents tried to submit the claim to their homeowner's insurance plan. And uh, the insurance company essentially denied the claim and wouldn't represent the kid, wouldn't pay out, and argued that it was an intentional act and that that intentional act is an exclusion under the insurance policy. And so it's, it's an interesting story and disturbing at the same time, but it's interesting on two fronts because, one, it highlights the uh, importance of teaching your kids and talking to your kids about the right way to behave. And even if you think something's funny, physical interaction like that, you just should try to steer your kids away from it. We've talked on this show before about a case that uh, we were actively involved in where um, a student punched another student in seventh grade in the stomach, but it was more of a slap. It was a tap. It was just meant to be playful. And the, uh, the kid that got hit ended up being paralyzed due to, due to a freak incident, but still. Um, and, and so this story highlights that, that issue as well. You've got to talk to your kids. You've got to tell them. It might be fun. It might seem interesting. They, you know, everybody's doing it or whatever the case may be. But, you know, you could seriously injure somebody. And now the other side of this is that the homeowner's insurance plan would not cover this claim. And, you know, you might be wondering why. And we'll talk a little bit after uh, our interview today with uh, Yakari Kane. Uh, we have her on today. We're going to do a question and answer session. Uh, she's the author of Haunted Empire, uh, the book that we discussed a few weeks ago about Apple after Steve Jobs. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about insurance in our law basics segment, and I'll explain some of the details. But um, for right now, I just want to touch on the fact that now you've got this kid and his parents on the hook for the damages that are going to arise out of this lawsuit and the injuries sustained. And, you know, infertility is, uh, I think, a, a rather significant claim, and you can, you can get significant damages from it. So but we'll talk more about the insurance implications in the, uh, in the law basics segment. Okay, next. Uh, in New Jersey, again, a judge refuses to dismiss a man's reverse discrimination claim against Petco. Now, we're talking about Petco, the national uh, pet store chain. And in this case, uh, there's an individual who's Caucasian, and he's working in a uh, warehouse facility in Monroe Township. And he had been there from November 2012 all the way through February 27th of 2013. And he was constantly complaining about the way he was being treated while he was at work, and, and primarily he was alleging that uh, all of the signs were in Spanish, all of his coworkers spoke Spanish, they refused to speak English, and when they did speak English, they were saying derogatory things about him being Caucasian, and um, you know, really discriminating against him on the basis of him being Caucasian. And this is interesting because 
discrimination typically is seen by uh, you know, a reverse scenario, a Caucasian man or woman discriminating against a minority. And so this individual filed a complaint in federal court. He's alleging uh, violations of um, federal law as well as state law, law against discrimination for hostile work environment, for um, all, all sorts of, of um, violations of discrimination laws. Now, it's interesting because um, Petco, like most everybody else, their lawyers thought, well, this is a nonsense claim. This is a, a Caucasian guy. Uh, I don't understand why he thinks that he was discriminated against. But the federal court justice, Judge Frida Wolfson, dismissed their motion to dismiss, or denied, I should say, the motion to dismiss filed by Petco and said that the case can continue because the individual, the Caucasian guy, he met all of the requirements in order to, um, to, to proceed forward with the claim. So it's, it's interesting, uh, but a reverse discrimination claim carries the same elements as a traditional discrimination claim. He still has to prove that he's a member of a protected class, and in this case it's a reverse protected class, as well as some of the other uh, elements of a discrimination claim. So uh, that case is going to move forward, and we'll be able to continue following that case as, as it progresses. Okay, I think this is our final, well, no, not, not final, but this is our uh, next to final New Jersey story of this morning. So the osprey apparently is a threatened species in New Jersey. They're birds. You know, I can't tell birds apart. They look like seagulls to me. Maybe they look a little bit like eagles. I'm not quite sure. But a pair of ospreys have decided to build a nest in a fire alarm off of one of the Jersey Shore towns, um, Spring Lake. And because the osprey are a protected species, the fire siren can't be utilized. So... In an effort to protect the osprey, we're going to not let a fire alarm go. We're going to silence a fire alarm to save two birds. Now, I love birds. They're right. They're great. They fly around. They look really nice. You think about how you wish you could fly and the freedom associated with flying. But if I had to choose between my family burning alive in a fire or saving two osprey, um, I'd call in the NRA and I'd have them take out the osprey. I, there's got to be something that can be done to move these birds. I mean, obviously, I'm kidding about shooting them, but uh, there's got to be something that you can do to move these guys. I, I don't see that it makes sense to um, run the risk of, of a fire and, and people dying over two birds. Now, I'm sure that animal activists are going to feel slightly different than... Uh, than what I just said, but, um, you know, there's got to be something that can, can be done. I'd like to know what people think about this. I think this is completely ridiculous. I think that the safety and well-being of, of people living in a community far outweighs the two birds. So we'll see how that uh, develops, but I would urge someone to wake up, get a ladder, and move the birds somewhere else. All right, this one is a story out of Portland, Tennessee. 
there is a teacher who is accused of instructing a second grader, uh, well, a third grader, to punch a second grader in the face twice. Uh, this highlights so many relevant issues, so many things that are going on right now, nationally, on a state level, and in your local town level. You know, we talk a lot about bullying. We talk a lot about anti-bullying laws and protecting kids. And when you drop your kids off at school, you're assuming that they're in good hands. You're putting your faith and trust into a teacher, uh, and, and you, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you have to hope that the teacher is going to do the right thing and take care of your kids and protect them, educate them, help them develop and grow. Well, this teacher, her name is Brandy Dobson. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Brandy Dobson is the, uh, is the second grade student's mother. She said that um, the elementary teacher, her name is Rebecca Castle, um, she instructed the third grader who was having a dispute on the bus with a second grader to punch the kid in the face. Now, Castle has been suspended and an investigation is pending, but I don't understand the thought process of this woman. Um, she's not a, a brand new teacher who was overwhelmed and, and couldn't uh, come up with a better way of resolving this situation or helping the kids to settle a dispute. I think this is just a troubled individual because how do you instruct a third grader to go punch a second grader twice? It makes no sense to me. And this highlights the importance, I think, of mandatory background screenings of teachers and educators because I could have a, a stellar resume. I could have a lot of recommendations and I could have a lot of people saying that I'm the best in the world but I could be psychologically unstable and I wouldn't want to take the chance of putting my kids with a psychologically unstable woman. Now, I'm not saying that this woman has any psychological disorder, but clearly something's not right because she's telling two young kids to go, you know, punch the other. That That's crazy talk in my world. Um, if, if a teacher ever did that to my kid, you better believe that, that, that school district would be sued. The teacher would be sued. This sort of thing, um, you know, happens so frequently where either a teacher is going beyond the bounds of what they are supposed to be doing or they're engaged in some sort of uh, sexual conduct with, with students or um, they're just mishandling and not taking care of our children. And that's completely unacceptable. So I would like to see this woman, um, you know, fired and, and really blacklisted from ever teaching again, because I, I think that's ridiculous. And I think that when you're tasked with protecting our children, that one offense is enough to make sure that you never do it again. I don't think that you should be given a, a second chance. I just don't. I mean, you, you're dealing with um, a great deal of responsibility. You are, are shaping the lives of young kids. And traumatic events in young kids' lives can have impacts you know, all the way into their adult lives. So this woman should absolutely... Um, be punished, and I think blacklisted from teaching. Now, we opened up the show talking about Captain America, and I want to talk about this story. So there's an individual uh, who is working at, or was working 
at uh, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, and he was dressed as the Captain America superhero um, in the park. His name is James Alton. Uh, James is 29 years old, and while dressed as Captain America, he met a 16-year-old girl in the park. Uh, Ultimately, they decided that they were going to start texting each other. It appears that the girl is uh, a resident of of, of the area, and um, so James decided it was a good idea to text this 16-year-old girl, and, um, you know, after some introductory texts and, hey, let's hang out, he decided that he was going to take some nude photos of himself and send them to her, because that's always a good idea, and, of course, the, uh, the girl's parents found out, and they went to the police, and uh, James has had to put down his shield and is now facing criminal prosecution. He's been fired from Universal Studios. um, And he also was working at Walt Disney World. God only knows what he was doing at Walt Disney World. Uh, But they've suspended him while this whole investigation is pending, and we'll see where this goes. But the interesting fact about this is, now, you know, everybody knows Captain America is quite honest, and, and... you know, true to character, so is James, because when the police asked him if James knew that the girl was 16, year old, uh, 16 years old, he said, yeah, he knew. He just made a bad decision. So, again, background checks, you know, do due diligence. I'm not saying that Universal Studios didn't, but, um, you know, you can't catch everybody, obviously, and I think that they're probably responding properly by firing him. I'm surprised, though, that Walt Disney World is only suspending him and not getting rid of him right now. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want anybody working for me, especially in, in you know a family-oriented amusement park that has any specter of impropriety associated with them. That would make me a little bit nervous. So uh, I'm sure that their legal team is looking at all the options to make sure that they don't end up getting sued by James for something. Um, But clearly, I I would imagine he's an at-will employee and and could and should be let go by Walt Disney World as well. All right, here's the last New Jersey story of the day. Um, New Jersey is looking at passing a bill in the Senate um, that would limit the sale and ability to utilize uh, ammunition magazines. Now, magazines are obviously the chamber, not the chamber, but the uh, receptacle that you put the bullets into, and then the magazine goes into the gun. Um, Handguns and and rifles and and that sort of thing utilize magazines. And the limit right now, the legal limit, is 15 rounds of ammunition per magazine in New Jersey. So that means you can get 15 bullets into a magazine. Uh, They want to pass this bill and limit it to 10. So, you know, we're going to post some some, uh, questions on Facebook. I'd like to get people's comments about this. Um, I don't personally see why this wouldn't pass, but I also don't see that it's really going to help anything. I mean, the idea of gun control and, and, you know, protecting people, well, it takes one bullet. You know, so I don't know that reducing 
the magazine size from 15 to 10, I don't know that that's going to do anything. On top of which, people who are looking to hurt other people, they're not going to comply with the law. So that just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Again, this is something that's arising out of Sandy Hook, arising out of the incident that occurred last year in the Garden State Plaza, uh, where we had a shooter walk into the mall. Um, but but again, I mean, we've talked to uh, the guys at, at Trigger Smart who have the innovative um, security handguns so that the gun can only be activated by somebody whose fingerprint is recognized. So we talked to them as well, and, and, and you know, they agree that simply utilizing this technology, um, obviously it's a, it's a good thing, but it's not going to prevent bad people from doing bad things, and it's not going to prevent bad people from getting guns, and, and you're not going to have someone intent on harming somebody, making sure that their magazine size is limited to 10 bullets. So I don't know that it's really going to do anything, but it is what it is, and we'll follow that, Bill. Um, now well, let's talk about that zombie apocalypse because you know, it's very, very important that we understand. In the event that there is a zombie apocalypse, Florida has actually passed a bill that would okay uh, concealed carry of weapons during the apocalypse. So right now you, can, you need a permit for concealed carry. It's uh, issued on limited circumstances in Florida. Uh, but this bill that's, that's pending final decision, it's been approved, so it can move forward. But as it's pending final decision um, in the state Senate, it, it essentially says that if there is a zombie apocalypse, you can carry your weapon in a concealed fashion. So that's, uh, that's pretty good. I don't know in a zombie apocalypse how many law enforcement officials would be out trying to enforce concealed carry laws, however. If they are, I don't want to live in that town. I'd rather that they start fighting the zombies. So I think it's a waste of judicial time. I think it's a waste of Senate time to have a bill about the zombie apocalypse. But that's what people do in this country. So, all right, now I want to talk about, uh, about this, this guy in, in Missouri, Cornelius Anderson. So in, uh, in 2000, Cornelius Anderson was arrested for armed robbery, and he was um, you know, convicted and sentenced to 13 years in prison. So what happened to him is that the court made a clerical error and they never had him report or remanded into custody. So he was out free, living peacefully among the community, making a good life for himself. Now, ultimately, somebody realizes, hey, we made a mistake Let's go bring this guy in now. And so they went, they arrested him, and uh, while he's in jail, they realize that, hey, you know, we really screwed up here. And they calculate all the time that he should have been serving 
which is like 4,700 and something days. Um, and they say, well, you have to get a credit for all that time, even though you didn't serve time in jail. They give him a credit, and it ultimately covers the time that he would have been in jail. So his delayed imprisonment results in him being free, never having to go to jail. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Now, again, I know it's the court system. I know we're dealing with people. I know that mistakes happen. But that's a pretty big mistake. You know, and then this is another interesting point that I'd like to make. People talk about, and this has been a debate for years and years, um, jail as a motivator, right? Uh, they call them correctional facilities in certain states. They want to attempt to correct behavior, right? So the, 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 the theoretic goal of the criminal justice system and incarceration in general is to punish, yes, but it's also to help, I don't want to say re-educate because that has some negative connotations, but um, it, it, it retrains people and helps them, now I'm not saying it does, I'm just saying what the argument is, helps them to get their lives back on track. Okay, now if that's true, then how did Cornelius manage to get his life back on track and not go to jail? So you have to wonder, you know, on the, the, the larger scale, right, a debate that we'd have at another time, does the present prison system do what it's supposed to be doing? Punishment, yes. I mean, of course, there'll be those people that'll argue that it doesn't really uh, even punish significantly enough because people have uh, free time, they can read books, they can get their college degree, they can do you know a whole bunch of things. But I, I think that this raises an interesting question, which is, does it do what it's supposed to do from a correctional standpoint? Does being in prison scare somebody straight? Does it fix the problems that they might be having? And I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that statement. I don't really think that uh, in all circumstances it, it does. Um, Cornelius apparently realized that he had done a bad thing, uh, realized that, that armed robbery was probably not a good career path for him, and seemingly changed his life and, you know, seems to be a productive member of society. That doesn't change the fact that he did commit a crime. Um, but I don't necessarily know that we've really taken a good look at our prison system lately to say, is this working or is this not working? So it's, certain, it's certainly something that we can debate and talk about on upcoming shows, uh, maybe we can even grab a guest uh, to talk about the psychological thought process in the ongoing development of the, the prison system and correctional uh, facility. Um, you know, and, and we can have uh, a lively debate about prison and its ability to correct certain behaviors. All right, finally, today, uh, anti-gay activist sought 
to marry his laptop. Yeah, that's right. Mark Sevier filed a lawsuit to marry his computer. Now, really what this is about is it's an anti-gay protest. Um, this guy has a history of um, protesting pro-gay uh, or same-sex um, bills and legislation, and he clearly decided that he was not gaining the attention that he deserved, even though a few uh, years ago he had, well, I guess it wasn't even a year ago, really, when uh, the Duck Dynasty incident happened with uh, Phil Robertson, and he had made those, uh, or allegedly made the homophobic comments. Um, this guy, Mark Sevier, filed suit seeking to defend him uh, and claiming that President Obama and uh, the cable television channel A&E had colluded to promote a pro-gay agenda. So I guess that didn't get him enough attention. So he decides now that he's going to file a suit seeking to marry his computer. Essentially, his protested point is if two people can engage in homosexual marriage, which in his opinion is wrong, why can't I marry my inanimate object? Well, why can't, you know, this has been discussed in the past where people have made arguments like, why can't I marry a farm animal? Um, well, he apparently really likes his laptop, and uh, that's the object of his affection that he chose. Maybe he saw that movie that was out uh, not too long ago. I think it was uh, with the, I can't remember the guy's name, where he's dating the girl or a computer or some such nonsense. I did not see that movie. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. So he, he files this motion, and the court actually hears it, I mean, because they have to. Um, they denied his motion. They had all sorts of comments. Um, they called it satirical. They called it removed from reality. Um, one, one court official is quoted as saying that he attempted to punk the legal system. So long story short here is that this is not going to move forward. This case is dismissed, and he does not have the ability to marry his laptop, um, but he, he did so, uh, I think, purely to make a point, and obviously it's not a, a very popular point. You know, quite frankly, um, we've seen over the last few years such a dramatic change in the state's um, recognizing of same-sex couples, either their rights or their right to marry, and whether you are against it or for it, I think that stunts like filing a lawsuit to marry your computer will never work. I mean, you can't, you can't stop the wheels of this machine. I mean, it's rolling and you can't stop it. Um, I think that by doing things like this, filing this clearly, in my opinion, frivolous lawsuit, even though he is legally entitled to do it, I think it's such a waste of, of, of our time, of the, the judicial system's time. You know, I, I, there's got to be some sort of 
greater restriction placed upon people who file frivolous lawsuits. Right now, you know, the standard is if a, a lawsuit is filed, it's deemed to be um, filed in a legitimate manner, not for frivolous purposes. I mean, that's the initial impression of lawsuits that are filed. And then obviously, as the case progresses, if the defendant believes that the litigation is frivolous, uh, depending upon your state, you might serve or file a letter that says, hey, this is frivolous litigation. You might move the court uh, through a motion to, uh, to try to get the, the case dismissed as frivolous. But the fact is that right off the bat, whoever you are as the defendant, you are faced with paying the attorney's fees to defend this frivolous suit. And, and I, I understand that it, it's part of everybody's constitutional rights and, uh, you know, the freedom uh, to use the judicial system. But there's got to be something that can be done, um, either greater punishment for filing frivolous litigation or the, the judges, the court system has to be more willing to enforce damages arising out of frivolous litigation. I can't tell you how many cases we've been involved in where the plaintiff most of the time is pro se, but occasionally is represented by an attorney, and they'll file a case that's so clearly frivolous. There's no way on God's green earth that this case has any merit. I mean, when you look at what the law is and you look at what they're alleging, there's no way to, you know, say that, that this is somehow acceptable and, and non-frivolous. I mean, it's very on its face. And so we'll go through the stages of defending the case. We will file a motion to dismiss instead of an answer. We'll send out a frivolous litigation notice to the plaintiff, and we'll tell them that we're going to seek fees and costs and sanctions and all that sort of thing. And, you know, 90% of the time when you get to the court in front of the judge and you're arguing that sanctions should be imposed, you don't get them. And I don't understand that. Um, you'll, you'll see that the court will occasionally award costs against a person who files a frivolous lawsuit. And costs are essentially what it costs you to put in the motion, um, not your attorney's fees, but just what your actual costs were. If it's $35 or $135 to file a motion, um, that's what you get reimbursed. But how, how is that fair? And I don't understand why... The judicial system doesn't look um, to, to sort of set a, a message of, hey, don't file these lawsuits because if they're deemed to be frivolous, then you're going to be punished. The statute says you're going to be sanctioned or can be sanctioned, but I don't see enough judges pursuing or awarding sanctions against frivolous litigators. It just drives me absolutely crazy. So I think that, um, you know, that's something that we have to kind of look at uh, and, 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 you know, try to encourage the courts to step up and enforce these frivolous litigation claims. So let's now um, move into the Law Basics section today. Uh, we are waiting to have Yukari Kane call in. 
so that we can um, you know, go through the various questions that our listeners have for her concerning her book. And um, while we're waiting for her, we might as well jump into um, the law basics section uh, because it's, it's very relevant to some of the stories that we heard today in the news section and relevant to um, some other stories that are coming to light this week. In particular, there is a, uh, a widow who was originally denied a $21,000 life insurance benefit after her husband had paid life insurance premiums for 18 years. And, you know, it's an interesting story, and ultimately um, the insurance company has done the right thing and and is going to pay her. Um, But we are talking about years and years of waiting for an insurance company to do something. And it wasn't until her, her, you know, case garnered some national attention that the insurance company stepped up and and did something. So I want to talk um, about insurance and I want to get into uh, some of the reasons why insurance needs to be understood by people in today's world. Um, I, I think that there's a general misconception that if I have insurance, then I'm good. I've got insurance, I'm protected. And, you know, for certain things, it's true. But I want to talk about insurance companies. I want to talk about um, how they operate. Now, how do I know about insurance companies? I'm a lawyer. I'm not an insurance uh, agent. Well, I started my career out uh, on Wall Street, and I was uh, with a large international firm. And our focus at that time was primarily insurance defense work. So we represented insurance companies. And we helped them when they got sued by um, individuals or or companies. Uh, in, In most cases, it involved either product liability claims against an insurance company or slip and falls, premises liability. Um, there was a whole series of, um, of auto defense cases. And, and ultimately what would happen is we would defend the insurance company. And so I've got this insight. I, I know how these companies work. And it really is a blanket statement that I'm about to make, but it does hold true and it does really apply to all insurances, whether it's auto, life, home, health, insurance companies make money by taking premium payments from their insureds. They don't make money by paying out insurance claims. So logically, the goal of any insurance company is to take in more premium payments than they pay out in a given year. So that being said, insurance companies are not really in the business of paying out claims. Rather, they're in the business of collecting premiums, making money, 
and denying claims. Now, this isn't the first time that you've heard this, I'm sure. There are so many stories about insurance companies who refuse to pay, pay claims, pay their, their, their claimants. There's denials for all sorts of reasons. You know, you're seeking coverage, but the accident happened on a Wednesday, and it was a full moon, and because of that, you're not entitled to any coverage. So, you know, that's, it's not something new. I'm not telling you something that, that you haven't already seen, um, but, you know, it's there, and you've got to be aware of it. Um, what I think that you have to understand is how insurance works. All right, so let's take a step back here and let's go back to um, the types of insurance that are out there. So obviously there is uh, personal insurance, right? So homeowner's insurance, there's automobile insurance, and then there's business insurance. So there's general commercial liability policies, there's officers and directors, errors and omissions, there's a whole host of policies. But what you need to learn, what you need to take away from this is that Regardless of what kind of policy you have, every policy has exclusions. And what is an exclusion? Well, it is a way out. It's an escape clause. It is a way that the insurance companies can attempt to avoid paying your claim. There are exclusions in every policy out there. Homeowners policies. Well, there's exclusions for flood. There's exclusions for natural disasters. There's exclusions for war. Automobile. There's exclusions for, um, you know, the way that you're operating it or who is operating it, who's operating the vehicle at the time, depending upon your state. There's exclusions for all sorts of things. And they're meant to protect insurance companies. So, in the case of um, that, 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 uh, the student that we talked about earlier today who hit the other kid in the testicles and, um, you know, when the lawsuit was filed, the kid told his parents and they submitted it to their homeowner's insurance policy. All right, well, first of all, you might be saying, well, why would you submit it to your homeowners? Well, depending upon your homeowner's policy, homeowner's coverage will extend to actions that occur outside of the home. So that in and of itself isn't a strange thing. Um, it's, it's quite often that an accident or incident will happen outside of the home and somebody submits it to their homeowner's insurance company. So that's understandable. But where we can illustrate this point about insurance companies is by the insurance company's actions. So they immediately, when they get the claim in, right? Remember, like if you're in a car accident, you're supposed to report the claim as soon as possible. They've got all these apps, right, like the Geico app and all these car apps um, where you can take pictures of your damage. You can submit your claim immediately. Why are you doing that? Well, it's really not for your benefit, okay? Yeah, you know, if it's a claim that's covered, you might get paid out more quickly on the claim. But let's face it, this is to allow the insurance companies ample time to investigate your claim. And what does that term, investigate your claim, mean? Well, if it is not a clear-cut matter of coverage. So, you know, in an auto accident, 
when you're rear-ended by another driver and there's a police report and you submit your claim to your insurance company, there's very little wiggle room for them to say, we're not going to cover this claim, right? Police report, you were rear-ended, you weren't doing anything wrong. So in those instances, yes, they're going to pay out your claim. And if you use these mobile apps and you submit your claim right away, yeah, you're going to get paid out more quickly after, of course, your deductible. Um, But in larger claims, the investigative process means let's let someone look at our insurance policy and tell us how we can avoid paying out on the claim. Now, I used to do coverage work for uh, large international companies, insurers, and uh, we dealt with a lot of interesting claims. I remember one claim involving a, uh, I believe it was a Stradivarius violin, which had a value of $275,000 or even higher. I can't remember the exact details. But what happened is the violin was damaged during an international flight, and um, the owner of the violin had insurance coverage on the violin, submitted a claim to the insurance company, who had an attorney review the policy and find out how they could avoid paying out the claim because the claim was so much money. And what they ultimately did was scour the policy, realize that there were exclusions for uh, certain negligent actions of the insured, um, the failing to properly secure the violin in transport. There was a whole host of these very unique, um, somewhat outlandish exclusions. And they conducted a, well, they call it an examination under oath. It's akin to a deposition. But really what it is, it's a question and answer session where the insured most often has an attorney to represent them and the insurance company has their attorney go out and question the insured. They want to know, how did you pack the violin? What kind of packing material did you use when you handed it off to the airport? Did you tell them it was fragile? I mean, on and on and on, right? And they get all this information and then they go back and they analyze it and they try to figure out a way not to pay out the claim. And oftentimes, there's no way around it. They have to pay it out, and they do. But they do take their sweet time. So in the case with uh, the testicle injury, so the homeowner's insurance company goes through and investigates, right? They, They analyze their policy, and they say, hey, look at this. There is no coverage for unexpected actions or... Um, intentional acts, and they're going to argue that the act of the other kid hitting the injured kid was an omission under their policy, an exclusion, I'm sorry, not an omission, but an exclusion under their policy, and therefore they don't have to pay out. So, you know, that's what insurance companies are in the business of doing. So we're going we're gonna to pause right now, and we're going to bring on to the line Yukari Kane, and we're going to uh, go through some of these questions with her. Hi, Yukari. Hi. How are you? I am great. 
Well, thanks for being on again today. Um, we've got a number. Sure, we've got a number of questions that came in since uh, our last show. So why don't we get right to it? Because I know you only have a limited amount of time today. Great, thank you. Okay, so um, the first question is uh, from Barry in Warwick, Rhode Island, and he writes. There have been recent allegations of Steve, Steve Jobs violating several laws, yet he's still revered as an example to follow uh, as an entrepreneur and business owner. Is Steve Jobs simply too big to fail, too popular to demonize? Um, what do you think about Steve Jobs and this question here, um, violating several laws, and he's revered as, uh, as an example of um, – you know, the entrepreneur that we should all be. What do you think about that? You know, I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I, I imagine that he's talking about the uh, the agreements that he had made with some of the, the, the other tech companies around Silicon Valley about uh, not hiring uh, from each other, et cetera. And, um, you know, he... It would be in, it's, it's an interesting exercise to think about what would have happened if he had still been around. How would he have still gotten out scot free? Um, and I I would imagine that he certainly probably he wouldn't have um, been subject to the level of scrutiny that that anybody else would have because he does have this ability to 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 persuade and, and, and deflect. Um, at this point, when he's no longer around, I, I agree with him. I think that uh, it's, there's probably very little that, that we can find out that's going to, to put any dent in his reputation and his legacy. Um, and just because he's no longer around and, and, and his reputation and, and what he has done and has perceived to have done um, is just outsized at this point. Well, that, that leads into another question that, that sort of piggybacks on this one. Um, this is from Josh in St. Augustine. Did Apple's success come from Steve's disregard for ethics and morality? So, you know, there's a lot of, of talk about that, um, that he wasn't an ethical or moral man that, you know, you, you go back and you look at the stories about him, um, you know, kind of duping uh, Steve Wozniak out of money and, um, you know, a general sense of disregard for ethics. What do you think about that that question and that statement? Did Apple's success come from his disregard from ethics and morality? You know, that's a really hard one to answer. Uh, there certainly seems to be plenty of stories where uh, it is a little disappointing. Uh, on the other hand, there are other stories where he is um, – he he goes out of his way for people, and it's it's part of his that complexity that I think makes him so interesting and intriguing. Um, I think that Steve, if people talk about Steve's reality distortion field and his ability to to convince other people to over to his own reality, and I think that that reality distortion field applied to himself as well. Uh, he convinced himself of of the he, he he I think to a to in many cases he did justify to himself why he was making certain decisions and um, and sometimes that was 
probably for the greater good and um you know which is a bit machiavellian but um but i think that's that's probably a little bit of the, the internal conversation that was happening and then you have to remember that um you know the 1984 commercial didn't come from nowhere i mean that that was representative i think of who Steve was and, and how he thought of himself and how he thought of Apple, which is that Apple was this uh, this rebel company that, that changed the status quo, and um, that was a really cool thing when Apple really was a small startup company and was going after big giants and, and um, didn't seem afraid to do that. And over the course of years and, and more recently as they've become a dominant company, that behavior has been has started to be seen in a different way. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's that's really, I think, a difficult question to, to answer um, because, you know, maybe Steve didn't perceive what he was doing as unethical or immoral and, and maybe he just thought of it as what's best for, for Apple. So mm-hmm. that's a tough one to answer. Um, here's here's an interesting one. Uh, this is from Tyrone in North Carolina. Were you afraid of the possible negative feedback that could result from writing your book, Haunted Empire, uh, from both Apple or faithful users of Apple products? I was aware that uh, that Apple fans may not like my book, but um, it didn't... It didn't impact the way I wrote it. Um, I it was really important to me to come out with something that was truly independent. And uh, for me, you know, I'm a journalist, and I my job is to to scrutinize things that happen in the world and and companies. And um, Apple was a really intriguing topic for me because. You know, ultimately, it's a story about what happens to an empire when it loses its emperor. And I had this ability to to see it firsthand, you know, to see what happens in the first couple of years firsthand. And um, that was that was that was too interesting to um, to resist. So, as far as as feedback goes, I mean, obviously, we know that um, Tim Cook had responded to you, and we talked about this last time. Um, since we last spoke, what, what do you, uh, what would you say the general response to the book has been? Um, what do you think about that? What, what, what is, what have people been saying? What have you heard people say to you? You know, it's, um, it's fixed. Um, it's, it's what's said, um, the, in, in public, it's the, the, the responses have been all over the board, which, um, I wasn't surprised about because people have all kinds of emotions about Apple. Uh, but um, it is interesting that I, I've gotten several emails from uh, people who are um, who know a lot about Apple and uh, saying that you know they don't they don't want to be out there publicly um, or they can't if they're inside Apple, but. Um, but how much they like the book, and that's been interesting to see as well. Let me ask you this question. Um, if Steve Jobs was alive, do you think that your book would be available on any of the Apple stores for download? I think if, 
if Steve Jobs was alive, I don't know that I would have been able to write this book. Well, I mean, topically, um, I wouldn't be writing a book about the transition. But my original idea had been to write about how Apple went from neo-bankruptcy to the success that it became. And even that book, I don't know that I would have been able to write it because the the fear out there about um, Steve's wrath was was just considerable. And um, and I think that uh, and, and and it was it extended to people who had no uh, material impact if Steve called them up and and, and screamed at them. But it it was just enough. And I think that there are there are a lot of books that have come out since Steve has has passed away that um, wouldn't have been written if he was still around. Steve, you know, reportedly had a great deal of influence. And like you said, his wrath, um, I mean, there's stories about him um, banning certain authors from having their materials available for sale on, on the iTunes store. Um, so, you know, he, he seemed to want to protect himself. Do you think that, um, and, and this, this goes into another question. We had a question from um, John in New York City who referred me to a link from an article written by uh, James Stewart of the New York Times. And uh, the title of the article, Steve Jobs, Near Capitalist Criminal Refutes the Decline of Capitalism. And, you know, he says a lot of things in this article, but the one thing that he says in here that's interesting, um, which kind of plays off of what we were just talking about, it talks about Steve being a, a narcissist beyond belief. Um, that he was narcissistic, that he was not in touch with reality. Um, they say that, that he could have been a great religious cult leader uh, <laughs> or a crime syndicate boss. And then there's some reference to the fact that Steve should have been in jail. Um, but let's take that into pieces. What do you think about the statement being made that he's a narcissist? Do you agree with that? I I think he has um, he's definitely displayed narcissistic behavior. It goes back to um, the other question about um, about his ethics. But um, I don't think Steve would have considered himself to be an unethical man. And um, and given the perception of some of the things he's done today, arguably um, that would. I could see um, that being understood as narcissistic behavior. All right, now just, just to let you know, you're hearing um, end tones for the show. Just disregard them. There's some technical issues, so we're going to keep going with the show. Um, what about the, the, this comment that he would have been in jail, that um, you know, what he did in general was illegal? And, and one of the other questions that, that we received, um, they say Steve kind of violated the law, and, I, and, and they sort of um, tie in your book, and they say that you, you touch on the fact that, um, that he violated the law by not telling people sooner about his health and physical condition. So... What what do you, do you have an opinion on that? Well, the um, 
you know, the not they should have been in jail thing is is um, actually quite is it, kind of funny to me because there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley and and um, really talented people uh, about whom I've heard that said. You know, well, you know, he or, or especially when they were younger, that you know, somebody said to them, well, you know, they're they're going to go far in life if they don't go to jail first. I mean, I don't know how much of that is is attributed just to Steve and as to the kind of um, extremely smart person that, that it takes. Right. Um, but um, the, the other question about um, – remind me what the question was again. Um, whether or not Steve should have uh, communicated his health condition sooner right. than he did. Well, so, so that I, I, I took a really deep look at that, as um, anybody who's read the book could probably tell. And I don't, I don't know that Apple ever violated the law on that one. Um, it was certainly a gray zone, and it wasn't good corporate governance, in my opinion, um, and in the opinion of a lot of experts that I spoke to. You know, it's not the way a company should behave, but. Uh, whether it violated the law is another matter, and that whole area is such a gray zone that um, that it doesn't appear to me that that they actually violated the law. All right, but you would agree that that you you know that Steve should have have identified his his condition sooner. Do you do you agree with that? I think yes. I mean, I think that he should have let people know sooner. I think that um, when you have worked as hard as he did and as hard as Apple did for on his behalf to turn him into a celebrity, um, you can't just turn it off. You know, he went out of his way to make sure that he his name was synonymous with Apple's when things were good, right? And when things are when things go bad, he can't just say, well, my life is private, because at that point he's already linked the two in everybody's minds, and he's linked the fortunes of both. So um, I, I do think that his health was material to um, Apple's well-being. Well, do you think that his, his um, obligation to disclose the health information, aside from... Uh, having been created as a celebrity, do you think that he owed a duty to the shareholders who were investing money into the company to know? I I do think that, um, you know, when I say that uh, his name was synonymous with Apple, I meant that in terms of business as well. And so, um, and we saw how Apple's share price fluctuated with rumors or news about Steve's health. And so those two were, there was a cause and effect. And, um, and I think that the future of, at that point, if you, if you go back into that time, it was very difficult for shareholders to, to figure out what the, what, what the future of Apple would look like without knowing about what his health situation was. But that's my opinion only, and I think, you know, in, in all the research that I did, um, it's, just, it's, it's just such a gray zone in the regulations that um, it, 
that I think that that they that Apple may have danced around the edge uh, a little bit, but um, they didn't break any laws. Okay. All right, this is from Andrea in Elmwood Park, New Jersey. She wants to know how long it took you to write the book and how many hours of research do you think you did? Oh, wow. Um, It took me two years uh, full-time to write the book, Uh, but that was preceded by three years of uh, covering Apple for the Wall Street Journal. So I I had a little bit of a head start there. And um, in terms of the hours of research, I'm not sure I could count. Um, I spoke to nearly 200 people in Apple's world as well as uh, Foxconn and and Samsung and uh, to really get the 360-degree view. And and I traveled um, to... uh, something like seven cities um, in Asia and Europe and and all over the U.S. So um, I spent a lot of time researching. Wow. So um, I I think um, that this this information, aside from the book itself, is is good because we do get quite a few questions um, when we have authors on the show about how how you, you get involved with being a writer and how you decide to write a book. And um, in conjunction with those questions, what we see a lot of is a lot of litigation about self-publishing companies. Uh, so we have people that are our listeners, regular listeners that are interested in learning how they would go out and, and write a book. So I know it's off topic from, from obviously the topic of your book, but what advice could you give to our listeners if they are interested in writing a book and getting it published? You know, I think, uh, first of all, don't give up. <clears throat> it's, it's really hard, and uh, every writer comes across rejections. Um, so if you believe in your book, don't, don't give up. I think, um, you know, the best advice that I got was that uh, I should never show my stuff until I think it's as perfect as it can be. And um, that was a really interesting piece of advice for me because I think there's this, uh, some people think that in the writing world, you, it's, it's good to go out and get opinions as, as you're working on something. And, and even if you've sold the book and you have an editor over at your publishers, um, you, know, you want to discuss things with them. And um, I, I, there's, a, there's a wonderful Berkeley author uh, named Adam Hochschild who's, who's been very successful and has written many books. And, and he said to me, you know, don't show your draft until you think it's as perfect as it can be because you only have one chance to make a first impression. And that first impression is important with, with anybody you deal with. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. Um, do you think that, I mean, obviously you were a Wall Street journalist, you're a Wall Street Journal reporter, uh, do you think that that helped you? Uh, you had significant knowledge about Apple. So do you think it was easier for you to get the book um, you know, published as opposed to somebody who doesn't have your reputation and the difficulty in getting a book published? It probably did. Uh, certainly when I, when I sold my proposal, it was uh, based on my reputation as a journal reporter and um, you know publishers are always concerned 
not only that a writer has a great idea, but that they're going to have the ability to deliver. And so um, I, I do think it probably gave them the extra reassurance. And also that I did have sources to start with to deliver on the book that I promised. Um, and so that it is much harder for somebody who has a book if you don't, if you're not uh, a writer by trade. And um, I would just say, you know, keep, keep at it. Um, you hear stories all the time about uh, breakout authors, and uh, and uh, you know they they I'm sure that they many of them have um, stories that they are uniquely qualified to tell. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's good advice for everybody because you know people might look at it and say, oh well, of course she was able to get the book published, but but it's not of course. I mean, you had specialized knowledge based upon your years of reporting and covering Apple that. Um, I think qualified you to write the book. Uh, that, that was another question we received from uh, RJ in Philadelphia, and he asked, what made you qualified to write a book about a company that you've never worked for? As an outsider to the company, what makes your sources reliable if they're only representing a handful of employees? And I, I think that you know we've pretty much answered that question. You, you had years Two years at least, right, of covering Apple for the journal? I was covering out Apple for, for three years for the journal. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, my book is a journalistic work. It's not a first-person account. Uh, and uh, that's what journalists do. We write about, we take deep dives and, and go get inside companies and, and stories and, and, and write about them. Um, I, I think, um, you know, and I spoke to almost 200 people uh, and had more than one interview with many of them. So I talked, I probably had more than 200 interviews. Um, and so, so it's, it's more than a handful. And, you know, ultimately, as a reader, you do have to trust me when I say that, um, that they were all either very qualified experts in the field or they had first, you know, many of them had first-person pers- first knowledge about the events or the background that I that I write about, and so um, you know it wasn't based on hearsay, and and that's where you know you do have to to trust that um, that that's uh, it, it is based on that, and um, and that's where you know I as a journalist have to to stake my reputation. You know. I think that um, people who criticize the book, from what I've seen, um, e- either through you know comments that we received that um, we're not going to mention on the air, or uh, some other sites that have comments listed, it seems to me that people don't understand the idea of the journalistic approach to writing, and that uh, this isn't you just pointing the finger or criticizing it. The book has so many positive elements to it. And, and you know, it's, it's not an I hate Apple book. And it seems like a lot of the comments that are being made are, are by people who haven't read the book. I read the book. So when these people are making comments about things that you either haven't addressed or it's not what you've said, it just makes me think that they really haven't read the book and therefore don't know <laughs> what they're talking about. Um, there's just a lot of people that blindly follow Apple 
I don't know why. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable cult following for Apple, but those people that, yeah, that if, criticize, they haven't read it. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I do have conversations with my friends about how Apple is the only company in the world where a journalist does a journalist's job, which is ultimately to report, scrutinize, analyze, tell stories, etc. And um, and if you if and and you get uh, branded as an Apple hater for that, and um, you know, I really don't have, I, I don't, um, I, I'm an Apple product user. Uh, I think I mentioned that in their previous program about, um, you know, I wrote my book on a Mac Air, or I have an iPhone, I have an iPad. I love Apple's products. I don't consider myself to be an Apple lover, but I also don't consider myself to be an Apple hater. It's, it's, um, I wrote the book because it's, it's an interesting way to think about what happens to an empire when it loses its emperor. I mean, I think that whether where, wherever Apple goes from here, whether it's up or down or, or the same as it has, um, there's no question that the loss of Steve Jobs has been a huge challenge for the company. It has to be. And, and that challenge is worth, um, was worth watching and analyzing for me. And so, um, you know, I, 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 of course, have thoughts about where I do think Apple's going to go in the future, but um, even if you think that it's going to be go do even better and, and it's going to continue to, to uh, put out amazing hip products, the, the transition is, was still a challenge. It just makes Apple abilities and, you know, Apple stories, that's much more impressive. But it doesn't mean that the challenges weren't there. You know, if you look at Apple's history and, and you go back to the time when Steve left Apple and got involved with Pixar and, uh, you know, other, other projects, and then they bring him back, do you, do you think that Apple can only be successful with Steve Jobs? Because clearly they had success and then a, a significant loss of momentum, and then they bring him back. And now, you know, look at what he's done. From the time they, they brought him back to the time of his death, the amount of products that he promoted, developed, had a hand in was significant. And now we're back to repurposing existing products. What do you think about that? You know, I think um, companies go through cycles in business, you know, ups and downs. And Apple's history compared to many other companies is still relatively short. And so there isn't an element of unknown here. Um, I think that, but, and and, and so there is an opportunity still for, for new leaders to come in and, be change agents, but I do think that the the kind of it would be a different success than the success under Steve Jobs because ultimately nobody else has the moral authority that Steve Jobs did of being a founder and a savior of Apple, and then and then coming in with with so many hit products that really changed the course 
of history for Apple and, and for people around the world, really. Yeah. And so, um, and and then there are other business physics types type things as well. I mean, Apple has become a huge company at this point. Your revenues, annual revenues, are something like 150 billion dollars. It becomes a much bigger thing to take the kind of risks that um, that Apple has in the past. And by that, I mean that you know when. When Apple came out with came out with the iPhone, it was uh, it was an all-in kind of thing. But Apple was a much smaller company. I mean, today if Apple were to say, you know, we're all-in, we're going to take, we're going to bet the company on a new product. I mean, that's you're betting a huge amount of business. You know, it's 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 a much different scale than it used to be. And I think that that does become harder when, uh, especially when you're CEO is is a hired manager, not not the guy who built it. Yeah. Well, Yukari, I want to thank you. Um, I know we've we've gone over the time that you, you had for us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to come back and to answer these questions. Um, I'd like to so remind. Much. Oh, sure. I'd like to remind everybody to pick up a copy of Yukari's book, Haunted Empire: Apple After Steve Jobs. I really think that it is a well-written, a very fascinating account um, through somebody's eyes who had reported on Apple and had been so involved in uh, a lot of, of the transitionary phases when Steve was on his way out. So I, I really encourage people to pick up a copy of the book and read it, and uh, even if you know, you are a diehard Apple fan. I think you can learn something and, and gain some insight into the book. And, and you know, Yukari, even those people that are criticizing the book, I, I think that there's no denying the fact that Apple has not produced anything stellar in the last few years. And meanwhile, its competitors are coming up with, you know, watches and waterproof phones and other unique and, and innovative things. I mean, ultimately, Apple might do it better, but they're certainly not on the cutting edge right now. So even those people that are criticizing, I, I pick up the book, give it a read, because it's it's going on. It's relevant to what's going on right now. Thank you. All right, Yukari, thank you very much. Um, you know, look forward to hearing from you in the future. And you think you're going to write another book, or do you think this is it? Oh, I think I'm definitely going to write another book, but um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what the topic is. I, I, I don't have anything right now. Okay, very good. Thank you, Yukari Kane. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Okay, so um, you know, again, pick up a copy of the book. Uh, it's a good read. Um, there's going to be people that uh, might disagree, but uh, it, it still is all, I think, uh, relevant information. If you are either an Apple fan or, you know, you want to learn more about business in general and, and how things transition, um, so give that a read. All right, I want to talk about um, our upcoming shows, and um, we will, I think, leave our discussion of insurance where we ended off before Yukari came on. Uh, unfortunately, uh, she was a little late coming on, and so it, it kind of bled into other segments. Um, but we, you know, we absolutely appreciate Yukari coming on.
but it's going to impact, obviously, our ability to continue with the insurance discussion today. So we'll leave that for an upcoming show or a separate uh, Law Basics uh, video. I just want to talk about two upcoming shows. Uh, the first show is going to be next Monday. And uh, let me get that date. That's 5-12, so May 12th at 10 a.m. We're going to have um, Mark... Henkel on, and he is a national polygamy advocate, and he is uh, promoting the repeal of anti-polygamy laws for consenting adults. This is going to be a very fascinating discussion with Mark. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some of the legal challenges that they're facing, uh, exactly what his goal is. Um, we're going to talk about some of the hurdles and obstacles and benefits and the history of polygamy. Uh, so I encourage you, if you have questions, um, which I can't imagine that, that we, you know, our listeners don't have questions about this topic. Polygamy is a, a very popular topic. There are shows that are on TV right now uh, dealing with uh, polyg polyg uh, polygamist uh, couples. Um, that's not really even a couple, is it? Um, I don't even know what you would call it, husbands and wives, husband and multiple wives. Um, but uh, it, it really is going to be an interesting topic. So um, get your questions in. You can post them on our Facebook page. You can leave comments under our YouTube uh, video of this show. Um, but, but ask the questions because I'd like to talk to Mark and um, really kind of get uh, our audience's uh, represented, represented or representative questions answered. And then after, um, after Monday, on Thursday, May 15th, we have Harry Hughes, who is um, representative from the National Socialist Movement, and he is going to talk about his cause, and we'll get into some legal issues and a debate concerning... Um, you know, the organization, and uh, that'll also be an interesting topic. So that'll be Thursday. So we've got two shows next week, Monday and Thursday. I want to remind everybody to um, subscribe to our YouTube channel after the audio broadcast of, of this show airs. Uh, we will upload a video of this show um, if you look at our YouTube channel, you'll notice that we have multiple playlist channels, and one of them is the Understanding the Law radio broadcast, and you can, uh, you can watch this show on YouTube. Obviously, you can always download this show through iTunes, um, but uh, I, you know, I, I know that everybody likes uh, video, so you can go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and you'll get that content. You'll be notified every time a new episode comes out. We also have other playlist channels that include uh, our Law Basics segment, question and answers, and more. So please go to our YouTube channel and click subscribe. Also want to remind you again about our app that is exclusive to the iTunes Store. And the beauty of this app is that it allows you to ask legal questions directly from your smartphone or iPad, from your iPhone, I should say, or iPad, and have the questions be received by an attorney at our office, 
and uh, an answer provided to you. And this is all free of charge. So take a look on the Apple iTunes Store. Search the app. You can look up uh, the app under Law Offices of Peter Lamont and download it for free and then uh, get your questions in and they will be answered by an attorney. So I want to remind you to do that. And I also want to remind you again that uh, any questions or topics or guests that you'd like to see on the show, um, we appreciate feedback and we look uh, to our listeners and viewers to give us some, uh, some indication of what shows they like, what guests they like, what topics they want to hear us talk about, and we will do our best to get them on the air. So post your comments and requests uh, on Facebook, through Twitter, um, directly on the YouTube page, however you want to do it. You can email us directly. If you want to discuss today's show uh, or any of, of the topics that we have touched on today, you can give us a call directly at 973-949-3770, or you can email me directly at info at peterlamontesq.com. I want to thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to uh, having you join us next Monday when we talk to Mark Henkel about polygamy. Remember that there's power in understanding the law.